0: I first encountered Olaidi Banks when we were both boys. We both attended the same primary school and coincidentally were a part of the same Cub Scout pack. As an elder cub, he was chosen as one of our pack's leaders. Olaidi was then and is now a natural leader. Upon passing his CXE exams, Olaidi went against the grain and began to work at a bank in our native Anguilla. While many were shocked at his decision not to continue on to the popular advanced level program at his high school, Olady says that the experience of being thrust into the workforce, long sleeves, tie and all, forced him to be responsible and taught him early on the importance of discipline, hard work, and the value of money, among a bevy of other lessons. O'Leary attended the University of Houston and then prepared for a career in finance. He began his journey, but swiftly realized that he wanted to add more to his arsenal. He decided to attend a law school. With a mortgage, a full-time job, and a marriage, O'Leary navigated three years of law school, completed a clerkship, and started his law practice with a colleague, while others would have made excuses or buckled under the pressure, Olaidi stepped up to the challenge and conquered. In the years since, Olaidi has been able to blend his knowledge of finance and law to serve a plethora of corporate clients. In addition, he has been a key figure in the careers of his father, Banky Banks, and his brother, Omari Banks, both wildly popular artists in the music world. Recently, Olide has allowed us to see his own musical talent by releasing singles and music videos. Though Olide the artist may have caught casual observers by surprise, those who know him were not at all shocked. To know Olide is to know his passions, his willingness to take risk where necessary, and his willingness to serve others. To know Olaidi Banks is to know, well, a leader. This is the story, thus far, of Olaidi Banks. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. He is an attorney at law, a musician, a father, and a husband. Or should I switch that around? Husband and a father. lady <laughs> mm. Banks, welcome to Planet 30.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Crispin. It's a pleasure to be on Planet 30, man.
0: Oh, pleasure to have you, my brother. So you are from the same island
1: where, where, I, where I was born, Anguilla. The beautiful island of Anguilla.
0: Tell me a bit about childhood in Anguilla. Oh, wow. That's going way back. Um,
1: I had a a great childhood man I, I think about it i i was thinking about this today you know i walked a lot during my childhood you know anguilla was a little bit of a different place you know you could you would walk everywhere that you were going and i enjoyed that um and even as a little boy i would go walk not just to the store but i walked from my grandmother's house to my mother's house which went different villages from between both my grandparents house um when we lived down in rendezvous i walked from rendezvous up to the valley so um
0: that's quite a, a lot distance. Of my, yeah yeah that's a, a good distance that's a good um a good
1: seven miles i would say yeah but um i would say that a lot of my childhood uh, uh the joy and the good memories come from walking and just a time that i spent thinking when i was taking those walks
0: childhood happens and and I must say, one of the uh, memories I have of you as a child, we 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 were in the same, uh, I, I believe, Cub Scout organization. But you were the leader. Yes. You're older than I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I remember that. You know, I, I tell my son about that story. About that. I tell my son. Look, it 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 meant nothing to us at the time, but it's a it's a fun little story right now. When we were in Cub Scouts, we had our meetings. In the
0: in the graveyard, in the, in the cemetery, cemetery, yes. who sit on sit on, on on
1: graves and have our meeting. Then it was it was literally nothing to it, and it was you know that's a wonderful memory to have, you know.
0: And, and, and you know that only occurred to me as strange when I became an adult. I said, we literally sat every Tuesday on some tombstone, <laughs> and I guess you yeah. know in, in the Caribbean um, the graves are. You know, lengthwise they're about yeah. what six or eight feet, right? Yeah. So the you know, and this is all above ground, so they made for excellent benches.
1: Yeah, perfect. I mean, it, 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 I guess they might call them mausoleums or something like that here in the states, but they were very um, well built structures. You know, concrete structures like small little houses that we would sit on, and that was a that was a great experience. I mean, that was uh that was just part of it. Never thought about it. We would meet under, I think it was a a, a tree. tree. We call it a, a tom and tree. Yep. Sitting on sitting on some graves. Yeah. Memories of boyhood. Yeah, man. Good, good times, man. Good times. Good times. Childhood was amazing, man. I, I, I. I so my son now is twelve, and I would tell him, you know, what I would do when I was nine and I was ten. I mean, it felt like all the time, you know. But I mean, especially in the summer and on the weekends, I would spend a lot of time in the bush, brother. Just. Seeing if I could find some birds somewhere, I do something. I mean, I wasn't catching much birds, but definitely trying and just spend a lot of time exploring. We call it the bush, but people call it the woods. The woods. The
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, as as you as you grew older, you finished high school and went off to work, and that Damn. was an interesting time in 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 culture and and in 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 the island. It was a time when the private sector was growing, hotels were booming. What was it like when you when you left high school and went into the workforce? Yeah, that was
1: interesting, you know, because um, it didn't feel very different for me, except that a lot of my good friends from high school, because, you know, in in Anguilla in the Caribbean, when you get done with fifth form, you take your CXCs or your GCEs or whatever, and then you can go on to do A-levels or you could go into work or you could do something else. And most of my friends that year decided to go and do a levels and I decided to work. So, um, that was, a uh, for maybe a little bit, maybe a couple of weeks, uh, three weeks or something, I felt like I was missing something. But after that, I felt, I felt great about it.
0: Um, that first paycheck learning... hit. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. The, the first paycheck
1: hit, man. I think it was something like, um, some, it was something about 900 EC or something like that, probably about 300 and something dollars. So that was, uh, that was three hundred and something U.S. So that was that was big money for me, you know. So, but um, but it really exposed me to to business at that time. Um, it helped to, in my mind, solidify me as a professional. And so, by the time I went off to college, I had two years of experience. Um, I did accounting for CXC in high school and did well in that and had the opportunity to work in the bank um, working in customer service working in corporate um, finance or corporate lending you know calculating interest by hand and doing things like that and having the opportunity to interact with some of the local business owners and even some of the hoteliers there and that really was a confidence booster to me so by the time I got into college I had a good sense of what the workforce might be, and it, it prepared me. It prepared me well. So, but that was a that was a time of 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 extraordinary growth in Anguilla. That was the mid nineties, and you know, it, we were we were going somewhere at that point.
0: So, let me ask you this: Then, in your opinion, is it worth it to go to work over A levels, or have you have you interacted with some of your colleagues from that time and asked, "Hey, what was your experience like?" uh doing A levels and do you regret it or vice versa? Yeah, I think most of the people, most of my friends who did
1: it at that time, it, it worked out for them, you know, because most of them ended up still going off to um going off to college. Um it they they had some additional time in school where they could, you know, probably mature a little bit, be around their peers a little bit. So I think I think if you're going to take it seriously or if you need a little bit more time, uh, to be mature, uh, to, to grow your maturity, I think that those A levels might be a good choice. For me, I definitely, I definitely don't regret the path that I took. And when I look back at, at my friends and contemporaries, the ones that I graduated with who did it, they all ended up um on an excellent path so i i don't think necessarily one is better than the other i think it may be an individual situation that that people have to look at on an individual basis
0: Mm -hmm. gotcha gotcha you left anguilla and then went on to the university of houston so two questions for you uh why uh and what tell us about your experience there yeah,
1: University of Houston, you know, when I was when I was thinking about going to college, you know, the, the process of selecting and going to college now is much better thought out than it was back in those days, you know. People were going to college at that time, but now more people are going to college. We have more people who, who went who could kind of give us advice. My mother went to college, but it was well before that, and I didn't have a lot of other people who that I knew personally that were close contemporaries who went to college. So I had relatives in Houston. I had relatives in New York. I had relatives in Miami. And so in my mind, I would go to somewhere. That was that was my I would go to college where, you know, I had relatives where I could either stay with them or interact with them, okay? And so I went and visit, my dad was living in New York at the time. And so I had spent some time in New York. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in New York, Newmo way around the city pretty well. Um, and then I hadn't spent much time in Miami, but I had been there. And, uh, I had a very good aunt and uncle in Houston. And so I said, I'd go visit these different places. I went visit these different places. Um, the year before I was going to college, but I went like in, um, October, November, And so when I went to New York, it was cold. This was the first, I mean, it wasn't even winter crispin. It was like in November. So it it was probably like in the 50s or something like that, 40s or something like that. I was like, "Mm -mm, too cold, absolutely too cold. (laughs) Can't deal with this. And when I went to Houston, it was in October. So it wasn't as oppressively hot as it is in the summer. And then Miami, I just didn't really get a sense of anything with that, even though that was a beautiful place. And so that was it. That Houston was a great place. My aunt was living there. I applied to school there and went to Houston. Right? It just literally based on the weather. But it, it turned out it turned out to be a great experience for me. Houston um, has the aspects of a big city, uh, but it has a, a smaller ter- smaller town type of feel, um, just like in Anguilla. You know, you say hi and good morning to people and people expect you to say that and you say that back. In New York, it wasn't the same thing. So the, the adjustment to Houston was not um, very was not very big. Uh, and then we also, at the University of Houston, one of the things that were really helpful, I made a lot of good friends. We had um, made friends during orientation. Um, and so, so a lot of those people are still my friends to this day. Um, and that's 27 years ago. But even... Um, we had a strong Caribbean students organization, uh, and so made friends from Jamaica, from every other island, Jamaica, Barbados, Bahamas, and all that. That was a real, that was a real good experience. Belize, I don't want to let them leave our Belize. Um, that really made, that enriched my college experience. And those people are still my friends to this day. Some of them I interact with more than others, but so it was a great experience, and you know we had a great mentor um, who was faculty at the University of Houston, who who was like an advisor to our organization. His name was Mr. Clark, and so he was really instrumental in mentoring me a bit. You know, giving me an opportunity to work on campus, recommendations, great stuff, man. So that was um so that was my early time at um at university of houston and then obviously i met my wife there. i met my wife my girlfriend at that time um danielle the year, uh at the beginning of my junior year and so that was that that story wrote itself so that was it
0: that's all that's always
1: a plus <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> but i'm telling you though know, I, I i i don't tell this to a lot of people but i do i do have a just a very small change of injury for you, you DC and Howard people. You know, when I when I I remember I came to uh, I had already graduated. I was already working. And I came to DC um, with my job. I would go there to do training and government contracting and all that. And so at that time I hooked up with Perrin there and then I saw USR Insta there. So I was like, oh my God, all these Grillians there. And then the people there from St. Martin and all that. So that was a um, that was a, that, that's the only, only little tinge. But, you know, realistically, when I was going, to, when I was going to college, it wouldn't have been that many other Angrillians and St. Martiners there. So it wouldn't have been the same experience. So, so Houston worked out for me. But that's the only little, um, the only little jealousy I have is when I, when I, when I would see, I would, even sometimes I went to New York, just walking through New York to work. I'm down, I think I was down in the village one time. I think I saw, I don't know if you were there. I know I saw Garson, I saw um uh, Pastor Cecil Son. I saw it's walking down the street. I know these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, but well, I know these people and so that's the only thing that, that doesn't happen in Houston. You don't walk around enough so you don't see you just don't see people that you that you know from your childhood and all that. But right, right. Houston but no, Houston
0: Houston place. Houston Houston's not a walking city at all. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You get
1: hit
0: by a car. <laughs> indeed indeed no how it was a good time i mean um yeah. those little enclaves you know the dc new york miami you yeah. and a, a, a as small as the island is there were collections of people you know yeah so did you experience any culture shock though um having moved from tiny tiny anguilla to houston houston is still a, a major city yeah i did i
1: did experienced culture shock um in terms of some of the I'll talk about some of the race stuff, you know. And so that that was that was some of the cultural things that I that I was exposed to that I hadn't been exposed to in person before. But even, you know, I had I, I lived a blessed childhood. You know, I had a chance to travel a lot as a child. I traveled to New York. I spent summers in New York a couple of times. I spent summers in France when my dad was in France. I um, did... did, um, Not summers, a a summer in in Europe when my dad was in France. Did different... So I was able to see the world. So it wasn't like shocking to me, right? Um, But in terms of... uh, The first time I really felt like a second-class kind of person was in Houston, in certain areas where you went, where... Um, just the way that people interacted with you, um, you got the sense that they didn't, they didn't see you as, as fully human. You know, I remember one mm. experience that I had early on, uh, a friend of mine, his name was Delroy, a Jamaican brother. He was in high school at that time. senior. V- high
0: very Jamaican name.
1: They're very Jamaican name. Just like Delroy Lindo. But, but he, um... He was a senior in high school that time. I was a freshman in college, and so my first semester, we were walking on walking on campus, walking on the sidewalk, and this guy just came down, and he saw us there, and he just walked right into us and like pushed Delroy down. And I mean, it was like it was almost a big situation, you know. And so, but it was just as if we weren't human beings, you know. And then in different situations. Um, that we had like that, but, um, I found my tribe, you know, that, that's one of the things that, that's really important is finding a a supportive network. But culturally that, that was one of the, that was one of the things first, I don't know if that was my first exposure to overt head on, head on impacting me type of, um, racism type situations right but um but it was it was striking was significant because i remember it and that was almost 25 years ago uh about 25 years ago so and i remember i remember it very vividly so um that was a that was a powerful kind of cultural thing but the, the one thing i would say because i was connected to caribbean people the thing that i that i had access to was a broader depth of Caribbean culture, food from different islands. Um, man, we had um, you know parties and get together from different islands. So that was part of the cultural experience as well. You know, um, and even other you know people from other places in Africa. Um, that was that was part of the cultural experience that I had. So it, so it wasn't all um, the the difference in culture or the cultural. Uh, distinction wasn't just negative. It wasn't just a kind of racial kind of thing. It was the exposure to a broader range of culture. You know, one of the things that people don't know is Houston and the suburbs in Houston, they have a wider range of languages and and cultures in this area than in any other area in the country. You know, so that's um, that's one of the interesting things.
0: Yeah, no, I I don't think a lot of people realize how... Uh, diverse Houston actually is,
1: mm-hmm.
0: great city. So yeah, definitely. You you your major was accounting. Uh, yeah, naturally. Accounting and finance. Okay. Don't, don't, leave
1: out the finance. Don't, don't leave out the finance.
0: Don't leave out the finance. Accounting and finance and undergrad. And so, what happened? That, did you work after that, or did you go straight into law school?
1: No, definitely. Yeah, I worked. Um, I, I worked. Uh, I worked. I had a. I've had a full-time job every year since before my 17th birthday. I, I I tell my son that, and I never let him forget that. 1992, I started working. I think it was um, September eighteenth, 1992. Uh, September 19th, September 18th, is my cousin's birthday, and since then I've I've had a job, a full-time job, every day of my life since then. So you know, when I was in in school, I was working. I had to find places to work on campus, other places like that. Um, and once I graduated, I got a, when I got my degree in accounting and finance, I got a full-time job and I worked the year. I, um, I graduated in 98, uh, took my CPA exam and got that done in 2000, 2001. Um, and I didn't go to law school until I didn't start law school until 2003, but I, uh, so I worked during that time in accounting as an accounting manager, then CFO, even when I was in law school, I still worked um, in accounting, same same role, same CFO role um, during that time.
0: So, so wh- why did you decide uh, that law was the path? Because it seems as if you were well on your way to, you know, rocking the accounting world.
1: Yeah, I never rocked the world, man. But uh, it, it, was, it was a good time. And, uh, you know, something about me, you know, when I was... Um, But we were in third form, so the if for people in the states that'd probably be the equivalent of maybe like ninth 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 grade. Yeah, Um, they came and asked everybody what they wanted to do when they were when they were growing up, right? And I didn't, I didn't have a clue. I mean, I was enjoying school, I was enjoying my childhood, and I was like, yeah, I want to be a lawyer, right? And so that kind of planted that kind of planted the seed for me. And it was something that i that I thought about from the time I was in college i I thought about um, going to law school. I wasn't sure exactly when where how, but it was something that i that I thought I would pursue, and I didn't know exactly what I would do with it, right? And so, you know, even as I was pursuing the CPA and as I would speak with different advisors, I was like, man, if you could get that CPA and you go to law school, man, you'd be deadly, right? And so it was something that I thought about. And, you know, I had a, a lot of support from my wife and people around me,
0: and that's what I did. So you decided to do corporate law. And, you know, for those that may be interested in that side of the law, because, and, and this is particular for the listeners in the, in the, in the Caribbean and um, our listeners uh, in Africa, because I know culturally, there are some similarities. Well, lots of similarities, obviously. But when we think of lawyer, we think of you know criminal law or uh, you know land disputes, disputes and that sort of thing. You went into government contracts, acquisitions, and energy. And tell us a bit about the work you've done within law.
1: Okay, and uh, let me tell you how, how you get there too, because. A little bit different, uh, a little bit of a difference in the, um, in the American system versus the British system is, like, in the U.S., before you go to law school, you have to have a, a bachelor's degree. Right? right. Whereas, I believe in the British system... You go straight. You go straight uh, to law school. And so, you got to get a degree in something. And in law school here in the States, you don't you don't really have a major, right? You have a, a, a core set of classes and you have a few electives. And so, really the work that you do in your undergrad will will supplement or help to position you for what it is that you do after law school. It can, right? So a lot of people go to law school having done maybe a political science, a history degree or something like that. Well, that's not going to prepare you for anything in in the corporate world. But if you have a a CPA or you did accounting or finance and you stay engaged with that, it kind of gives you a little in to potentially pursue that. Uh, but in addition to that, I'll tell you, so I didn't, don't let anybody fool you. My path wasn't that straight, right? My path was kind of winding. And so when you get out of law school, I i took the, uh, I took the, the ruthless trap. I took the, the tough path, which is, I came out as a solo right out of law school. I wrote a, when everybody was trying to figure out where they were going to get a job or do that, I was writing my business plan when I started in law school. You know, I, I was figuring out what I wanted to do. You know, I have family connections to entertainment. Um, I had already been working in the government contracting space, um, in accounting. And so I had some, some real deep knowledge and relationships there. And so I felt like that's, those are things that I could kind of navigate my way there. But when you come out of law school and you decide you're going to hang a shingle, which is you're going to start your own practice, uh, you got to do what comes in the door. So the first thing I did was a was an eviction case. You know, the first case <laughs> I did was representing this this lady, God bless her soul, who was getting evicted, you know, over six hundred dollars. You know, and so I I've done that. I've represented I've done eviction cases. I've done divorces, done criminal defense. You know, based on my background as a CPA, and we got—I started doing a lot of work with this because when I started practicing law, um, I got my law license at the end of 2006, and the market um, crashed in 2008, and so there were a lot of foreclosures and a lot of things um, going on around that time. And so, while I was in law school, um, I had an opportunity to intern with the attorney general's office because they were looking for people who had CPAs or people who had accounting background to look into some predatory lending and kind of financial fraud types of things. And so I was able to get that position based on my background in accounting. And I did some fairly significant work with them, um, with the attorney general's office and it looked good on my, on my resume, on my record. And so, what I did after that, so when when the market collapsed and they started foreclosing all these people, I started seeing some of the same names, come up the same names who were involved in some of the predatory lending and the mortgage fraud. And so, I started making a living suing banks. I was suing banks who were um, um, wrongfully evicting people who were... Getting people in these modifications and never finally modifying them, doing all that sort of stuff. I was representing people on a criminal defense side, people who were being charged with mortgage fraud. So it was at a straight path, but it helped to really um, help me to build my skills, um, build some relationships, and learn what it is um, to have a straight back in a courtroom when you feel like overmatched. So that was. Um, <laughs> So that really, all of that really helped me um, to put me on a path to where I am right now doing the government contracting and construction and really, really on that path.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you started out, you probably had a very small office. <laughs> sort of like the, was it sort of like the, 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 the depiction of lawyers on TV when they first started out with just you and the secretary? <laughs> no, man, I had a big mahogany
1: walls. No, man, they, of course, of course, man. <laughs> Uh, so I started out with a brother, a partner, um, Patrick Anguolo, man. And so we had, we were in this little office suite. Uh, we didn't have a, a, a secretary. No, it, it was us, man. We were, we were the secretaries. Patrick was a year younger than me, uh, a couple of years younger than me. Even though he graduated a year before me, because I went to law school a little bit later. So this was now 2008 or so, and 2007, 2008. He was already on YouTube and that sort of stuff, man. And we were making these little videos and doing things at that time that everybody thought was stupid. But now everybody's doing little. I'm making instructional videos that nobody's looking at, right? And I'm serious as a judge, you know, trying to try to tell people. But it was, yeah. We started out very, very, very um, humbly and meagerly in terms of in terms of our office, you know, and we. Um, Even after that So we practiced together for about Maybe two and a half years And I'll tell you this, I have this one desk uh, The one thing I did have was a really nice desk Um, And it was a Desk was was about 250-300 pounds And I have lugged that desk Through elevators and up flights of stairs uh, Three or four times The last time I did that About about Seven years ago, I said I'm not doing that again So yeah, we out in practice yeah that's how it is you it's no it's no glamour and glitz it's really about getting a foundation really learning because what law school teaches you is how to think like a lawyer but literally you don't you you wouldn't know how to find your way inside a courthouse um after you get done with law school you don't know how to fill out one form if somebody came to you and said they needed a contract for so-and-so unless you had a forms book to go get it from, you'd probably be trying to draw that up from scratch. So it's a lot of learning. It's really a a process that you go through to, to build yourself. And the first few years that you are in it, it's really intense, like an apprenticeship either under someone's tutelage or trying to learn from the school of hard knocks, learn it yourself.
0: Because, you know, one, one, one was asked the question um, with, you know, being a CPA, the experience in accounting, the experience as an intern, and a law degree—you could have been a rock star at, at a large firm. Yeah, you know, uh, that would
1: be—you you could, you would think so. It—it's it, possible. You know, I never really had those aspirations because. Like I said, going into law school, I had a business plan. I was working on my business plan going into law school. I had a, a family. I was already married by the time I was in law school. By the time I was in law school, I was already married for four years. Um, and so, and by the time I was out of law school, I, I had been married for you know for several years. So, you know, when you go to that to that big firm setting, and people don't really understand this. They pay you a lot of money, and it's a prestigious type of situation. But they own you, right? They own you. You, um, you're gonna work a minimum of seventy hours a week. Mm-hmm. And if you work in below seventy hours a week, uh, you know it's really frowned upon. You know, and then I had other interests. You know, at that by that time I was already working with the Moonsplash Music Festival and all these other kind of interests that I would have had to definitely give up because you just don't have the luxury of doing it and you know you don't get to be uh, a big big firm lawyer and something else no you are a big firm lawyer and that and that's got to be something that you um that you aspire to before you get into law school because even one of the one of the aspects of that is there's a process in law school called clerking. So you're expected if you're going to get a job in one of the big firms, you have to clerk while you're in law school. But I had a full-time job when I was in law school. I had a mortgage to pay, so I really couldn't clerk. The reason why the, uh, the Attorney General's office took me on is because they needed somebody really bad, and I could do it after hours. I could do it whenever it is that I wanted, but um, if I were going to clerk with one of the big firms, I would have to take eight weeks or uh, 12 weeks off during the summer, I would have to, you know, not be able to to work and pay my mortgage and all that. And that, that just was not something that I was in a position to do.
0: Hmm. Interesting stuff. I didn't know about the clerking thing.
1: Yeah, that's that definitely, that's a big thing. Yeah, you, know, you, you can't get into one of the bigger firms without clerking, there, um, it, it's called a clerkship. You get a so a lot of people hear about like a, a federal clerkship where you clerk with a federal judge, but the big firms also have clerkships where they they want to bring people in from from the time they are one L. So when you're in law school, your first year you're a one L, your second year you're a two L, and your three year you're a three L in the year that you graduate. And so they don't hire people who hadn't clerked with them at least one year and And most of the time, they like to hire people who clerk with them during their one l year.
0: Wow, wow, the politics yeah. of it all
1: oh yeah, definitely, definitely. You can't get away from politics, brother.
0: <laughs> Is there anything within law that you you know that you still want to accomplish?
1: Uh, I mean, I enjoy what I do I mean, um, still want to accomplish within law. No, I'm, I'm passionate about helping people. I'm passionate about helping people build businesses, grow businesses. Um, you know, I wear it as a badge of honor when I'm able to help somebody, you know, create generational wealth. And so I, my hope is that over the remainder of my career, that, you know, every year I'm helping a couple, uh, three or four people really change the course of their family financially and build wealth in their community. So that's, that would be what I would want to accomplish.
0: Speak you know. to the importance of that for two seconds. Building Man. generational wealth.
1: Oh my goodness. I mean, if we get into, into that, I mean, even, even in Anguilla, even here in Houston, in the state, that, that's one of the, that's one of the big things. Being able to own things, own things like real estate, own things like businesses, um, I use this. the The Bible says a good man or a good woman leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So it's not just about what you leave to your children. The, the goal has really got to be to leave something for two generations down, and that's that's what's called a legacy, right? When you're able to build something and and plant something, because other than that. You know, one of the challenges that we face in our community, sometimes it happens in Anguilla, a lot of times it happens with African Americans, is that we're starting over every generation. Every generation we're starting over again and and again and again. And so it really, we have to have a a mindset uh, to make some sacrifice and build for the generation beyond. We can't wear, drink, smoke, drive everything that we earn, you know, because it doesn't matter how much you earn, what matters is how much you you're able to keep from what you earn. You know, so you, that's a
0: you have an uh, an analogy and, about a mango tree. Uh, share that with the audience.
1: Yeah, the, the mango tree analogy is this: um, you don't plant a, a mango tree for yourself, and you don't plant a mango tree when you're hungry. You plant a mango tree for your grandkids. I use as an example my my grandmother, um, who's passed away now. 20, 21 years ago, in 2000. You know, she planted a mango tree when I was a little boy. I, was, I wasn't I was even 10 or 11 at that time. And now that, man, but for seven or 10 years, that mango tree didn't bear anything. We were like, man, this mango tree is like a joke. This mango tree is not bearing anything. But now, my aunt who lives there, she's got to call people and say, look, man, y'all need to come and pick these mangoes. The mangoes falling on the ground and all that. And now we have that connection to our grandmother because of a tree that she planted in her yard so many years ago. And so that's that's a perfect analogy for the investments that we make. And some of the investments that we make and some of what we build will not be financial. Okay, So some of the legacy that we leave will not be financial. Some of the legacy that we leave will be uh, the lessons that we teach our children, the work ethic that we put into them right? And so even if we're not leaving people a boatload of money, even if it's a business that we started that we couldn't get past a certain point, there may be a generation that comes that has the knowledge, I have a different insight, I have a, a, a different connection to technology that could really push this thing to another level. So I really feel strongly about thinking through um, generationally, and doing things beyond our individual instant gratification.
0: Understood. Understood. I like that. I like that. Yeah, thanks. Very important. Now, you are a huge advocate when it comes to social justice, and and you have a lot going on in terms of social advocacy. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah,
1: so I I really... I grew up in that, right? So people in Anguilla would know that um, my uncle um, was involved in politics. He just retired a couple of years ago. He had his last election a couple of years ago, um, Victor Banks. And so he was a good example for us in that. But also just growing up, that was an ethic in our family. It was community service. I learned that from my grandmother, both my grandmothers. I tell this story. You know, my grandmother, um, Evadna Daniels, um, she... Man, I mean, anytime I go to her house, she send me to carry food by somebody, you know. She send me with a little plastic bag and the thing, and I'm going to some old person's house. And, you know, that really was formative for me, you know. That was formative for me because my I never knew my grandmother working a day in her life until she wanted to work when, when she didn't really have any grandchildren to take care of and she went to work in her brother's store, right? But... Um, and she did that to keep herself active, but she was always willing to share and, and to give. And that was something that really resonated with me. I mean, she was adopting children all the time. I mean, there was no, we didn't have a foster care program, but she had a, a, a foster care thing in our house because she just loved sharing. And so that that kind of, that's part of what I'm talking about in terms of legacy that she planted in me. And so when I came to the States and and Houston became a community that I was um, embedded in, it was something that I've always looked for opportunity to serve. And even with the Caribbean Students Organization, CSO, that I was a part of, a service was a big part of it. And so it started there. When I got done with, with law school, I worked with the NAACP. And so you see the brother Crump, um, on TV right now, who you know helped Trayvon's Martin family, yeah, George ben- Floyd, Benjamin and all that. Crump. Benjamin Crump, yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of other people out there doing because that's what we were doing as well. And so, God bless him. You know, he is able to build a practice around that. But there's so many people that people don't know about who are out there serving the community like that, and that's what we would do. So twice a month, we would have these legal clinics where people could come in. They bring their issues. They get to talk to a lawyer. We help them figure out certain things. Again, I tell you, the first case I had was helping a lady with a with an eviction. That was it came through that. And so, you know, there was all of these different things, man. We were helping people stay in their houses during the the foreclosure crisis. And so that time that I spent working with the NAACP on Saturdays, that really was formative for me. And you know, because I had done the work with the Attorney General's office and learned about predatory lending, everything comes together. And so I was able to bring that to the table. And so that that's where that passion came. The passion started from my grandmothers who were women of service. And then it grew from the organizations that I was involved in. And then I had the opportunity and the platform through the Attorney General's office Uh, consumer protection division, and then with the NAACP um, here in Houston. And now I'm a member of a group called um, 100 Black Men. Um, And it's 100 Black Men of Houston, the Houston chapter. And so it's a mentorship and service organization. And so that's, that's one thing that I'm really passionate about, man, is service. And even if we talk about the music that I do right now, It's all related to that passion uh, for service, um, inspiring
0: and empowering people. So you just mentioned something uh, that I I was going to bring up now anyway. Your music career, not only is the man a lawyer, ladies and gentlemen, the man has now positioned himself in the music industry, not behind the scenes as he previously was, but now as an artist and I know this would come naturally for you. You mentioned your dad a couple times, and 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 of course your brother. Well, we'll tell everyone who your dad and your brother are, and then that would uh, kind of put it in context.
1: Yeah, so my dad is a, a guy by the name of Banky Banks from Anguilla, and he, I, I say that he's really a pioneer of reggae music in the Eastern Caribbean, and he has broadened the scope of what he does beyond reggae music. But he's really a pioneer uh, for people who want to pursue music professionally um, on Anguilla. Um, Omari, former West Indies cricket player, now a, um, a reggae and recording artist, uh, guitar virtuoso. And, you know, I had an opportunity. So that's why I said I had a privileged childhood, um, Chris, when I had privilege and access, you know, and privilege doesn't mean money because so people think privilege means money, but it means access to opportunities. So from the time I was a child, I grew up around um, the music business. I remember vividly when my um, my dad went to um, to Sunsplash in 1983. That was a very big deal when he when he came back. You know, at that time, Musical Youth was a was like
0: the biggest thing ever, and I don't know if people know about Musical Youth. But the but these, Pastor industry, Pastor yeah.
1: So these these little kids playing reggae music, man, and these guys. But it was just fascinating for us as children to see other little children playing music on that level, and it was very inspiring. And so it was probably very annoying to my father. But all I was asking him is if he met musical youth and what they were like and all that. But that was um, that was a big, big um, deal for me. But you know, growing up around the business, I had the opportunity to do that, and even. I was mentioning uh, to someone uh, this past weekend. You know, I I wrote my first entertainment industry press release when I was like 14. You know, so I had to write a press release for my dad. My mom couldn't help do it because my my mom's trained to do that. And I'd read press releases, did that. I, I wrote a press release for something and I started getting it. It was probably the most terrible press release, but it gave me confidence and I started to become better at it, and so it was something where I was able to learn and grow behind the scenes, and then even um, I started, I would say, my professional work in the music business started in 2003, so that's almost 20 years now, working really diligently with the Moon Splash Music Festival, working with Banke's career to relaunch his music here in the U.S., And we did for several years, tours, annual tours of the U.S. from 2004 through 2012 or so. Really getting a lot of traction, doing a lot of things. And then Omari started his career in 2010. Um, And so really immersed in it. So if you can imagine everything else I was doing, I also had a full-time job um, in artist management and behind the scenes. In the in the entertainment business had great um, great relationships there with a lot of people that you not you would imagine them because you, you work in the business but it was just a it was just a great um, great time and then um, at some point in time I I found my voice and I said hey this is something that um, if I'm gonna do it this would be the
0: time to do it interesting your part of your bio says that your music is about faith relationships and social justice and i guess that's in keeping with the, the themes of who you are while banky banks and omari are are more uh, i guess you would consider them more in the traditional reggae vein your music is it has more of a, a of uh it has more hints of gospel
1: yeah yeah so definitely and that's based on my Based on my orientation and, and how I got my started at uh, how I got my start as a professional performer, okay? Because now, so one of the things that we didn't talk about is for even at this point in time, I am very active in churches. I was associate pastor of a church from two thousand until two thousand seven. I mean, two thousand ten until two thousand seventeen. And now I I work as a itinerant uh, worship leader, I meaning I go from different places different places doing worship leading, and so it's something that definitely informs uh, my music. the the My faith is a is a critical component of my music, and so that's that is a, a significant um, difference. I think. I think all three of us, you know, Bank his faith is a part of his music, and he expressed it in one way. faith and his and his social outlook is part of his music, and then so we we all bring that, but I think we bring it from different perspectives. And um, but yeah, mine is definitely rooted in uh, my identity as a as a Christian person and my work as a leader in in Christian churches. And so, you know, I will have some, there's some songs that I do that will have a strong Ray component and a a strong um, uh, worship component for people who are aware of that kind of style. But yeah, it's the same for me. Yeah, I have a unique, a unique mix,
0: a unique blend. Mm, Indeed. Tell us about your, because your lyrics are very deep, right? Uh, Very they're not just thoughtful, but they're thought-provoking. What's your writing process?
1: Okay, yeah. So I'll tell you that now. So I give a lot of credit to Banky and Omari um, for my my growth as a, as a lyricist. And I'll tell you my, what my process is. Um, because one of the things that has helped me to become a better writer, and I would consider myself a good writer, a good songwriter, that may not be a good thing to say about myself, but... I consider myself a really good songwriter, right? And I got that from part of what I had to do in terms of working in artist management is I had to transcribe lyrics. I had to I had to learn all of Banky's song inside and out, all of Omar's song inside and out. So I know all of their catalog inside and out. As I would look at some of the structure of their music, and I would be um, intrigued and interested by it. But then also in terms of playing worship music at church, you know, one of the things that I, that I did over that time, over the past 12 years, I had to learn a a catalog of over 300 songs. Right. And so learning them, learn the songs, learn how to play it. You see and understand different types of patterns. So when I'm writing a song, I start from a concept. So if I'm writing a song about faith, if I'm writing a song having to do something with worship, I start with a verse, uh, uh, a, a scriptural verse that's inspiring the song. And I would meditate on that for a while, right? And then, you know, I would have a, figure out what the concept is, a title or something like that, and then write the chorus first. First thing that I would do is try to, you know, get the chorus. So I'm always um, working on my guitar with different chord progressions and different things. And if something, if I really like it, I'll write it down, I'll save it in my phone, I'll do that, and I could come back for it a different time. And so then when I go to write a song, I'm playing around with the progression, playing around a couple words, and then once I get the chorus, then I could build the verses on that. Because then now, I could build out a song that is based on a concept, right? And then it is, then expands, and it's substantively meaningful. So I'm not just trying to throw words together that rhymes. So, that's why I say I'm a good songwriter, and that may sound like a little bit like bragging, but I mean that from the standpoint of, you're not gonna hear a song from me that's not well composed, or that is not thoughtful, that does not make sense. And the reason, it doesn't mean that I haven't written songs that are not well composed, that are not thoughtful. I'm just not gonna put them down and let other people hear them, right?
0: For someone that has recently started as an artist, people are recognizing your prowess, you know, as a creator, because your single story of my life earned a laureate as an official selection in the Mid-South Black Film Festival. Uh, What was that honor like for you? Uh, Did you expect it, or...?
1: You know, I really wasn't expecting it. It was good. It felt it felt gratifying because that song—that was the first song I released, right? It was the first song I recorded, the very first song that I released. But it's such a personal song, and it's such a song that means so much to me. And it's—it's really a letter from me to my son, um, telling him what I understand life to be at that point. It's a song that I wrote after Hurricane. Orma um, and Maria, after Hurricane Harvey here in Houston. So this was 2017, and so many people lost so much. They lost their houses. They lost all these different types of things. People, we have such a short memory, right? We're in 2000. We're in 2021 right now. But if people in Anguilla, there was not a tr- a leaf left on a tree in Anguilla um, in September. 2017 after the storm passed through I mean, everything was gone right and so that really that really is what kind of pushed me to say look if you are ever gonna pursue this music you're gonna you're gonna do it now right and and nothing is promised and so I'd already started writing a few things that I had written for other artists here so one of the things I write for other Christian artists and hip-hop artists here I write things for them here in the states and So I said, well, I'm going to pursue my thing. And and that was one of the first songs I wrote after the storm um, for my son, who was seven at that time. And I wanted to just kind of write something to mark the moment and then write it from my own eyes. But also, if I could imagine myself writing through my father's eyes um, as someone who's experienced that storm on an island. And so that was... um, that was something that um so it was is a personally meaningful song and for it to be received like that we did a we did a video for it that i really wanted to tell a, a good story and not just be like a a video where i'm stand up there playing a guitar but to tell a multi-generational story and that's that's what you see in the in the in the in the short film for the song and so that's why they, they selected it, man. And I was I was really proud. Um proud to have
0: that happen. Indeed, indeed. First one out of the gate. <laughs> First
1: one. Yeah, yeah. So we got that. And you know, you know, one of the songs, I did a song in 2020 called House on Fire.
0: Right? I, which is which is my next question. Tell us about House on Fire.
1: <laughs> man, House on Fire is now that is the song now. That really pushed me to a level of um, recognition here. Where, where some people um, looked at Storm My Life and they said, "Okay, well, this is a guy. I mean, he plays music in church, and so you know, this is a song that we could expect from him." But you know, a lot of guys in the music business on the reggae side, you know, Cat Cool from Third World, Benjamin Myers, all these guys, they had kind of turned on the side and It's like. Well, that's this is this what you're doing now, you know. And so, <laughs> after you
0: know, after after knowing you for so many years as, as Banky's son, the lawyer. Exactly. Yeah. No. That's it. Hey, this is yeah. The,
1: you call call Olete, That's Banky's son, the lawyer. Right. He's gonna take his stuff. And so, the thing about it is, man, you know, it goes back to the, the social awareness, the work that I do in the community. I'm just looking at stuff going on, man, and. Having the time to sit down during the pandemic, it was like this seemed like a this seemed like a movie I'm sitting. in. I, this, somebody must be punking me, man, because I'm I'm seeing all this stuff happening. We got people getting killed in the street, people getting killed on video, and people are like, and 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 people are making excuses. Well, I mean, yeah, he did get shot in the back, but I mean, we don't know everything that happened, right? But we know he got shot in the back, right? We did see a guy get choked out in front of a store uh, for selling cigarettes, but I mean, he was a big guy, right? We saw George, yeah, we did see a guy kneel on a guy's neck for nine minutes, but I mean, we don't know exactly, I mean, he wasn't perfectly still. And so all of this stuff was happening and that's where that song came from. It was like, like I'm trapped in this alternate reality, where everything that we that we see, and still people are popping bottles, and they want to buy this name brand and that name brand, pacified. Who, yeah, and people who look just like them getting killed, and it's like, it's like, hey man, it happens, you know. And so for me, that wasn't that wasn't enough. I mean, I could trace a lot of my writing process and a lot of the way that I look at life on the fact that I have a son who's grown up in this country uh, and wherever he's grown up in the world as a young black man, he's getting a little bit older and it's just a scary place to, to raise a child generally and to raise a young black man. I mean, and I'm a, I'm not a little guy. And so he's going to be, uh, he's going to be a tall, a tall guy. I mean, even in all his classes, he's always been the tallest until now he's 12 years old and people, or looking at him like he's sixteen or seventeen and and it's just it's all of that. All of that came together in House on Fire, man. And so, you know, what really happened with that one is a very dear um friend of mine, um, uh so a lady I really respect him is Pat McKay. She's with Sirius XM. Um yep. I sent her the, the infamous, sent her this- infamous Pat McKay. <laughs> yeah, Pat McKay, man. A wonderful lady. Um the
0: legend in the uh in the reggae industry. Legend, a beautiful spirit. And so I sent her the song
1: um, to hear and see if it was something that they would be interested in for the station. And she was, and she wrote back, she, man, I love it or whatever. Tell Omar, man, I really, I really love this one, right? <laughs> and I was like, no, it's not Omar, it's me. And so she didn't even know that. So she, she put it on the, on the station and it's playing. And, and Omar's fans are like reaching out to him and say, yeah, Omar, we hear the new song on Serious Exempt. So he reached out to me and was like, um... People are telling me that they're hearing your song, but they're telling me it's me. So I reached out to Pat. She was like, I just assumed it was Omar. So that's why we had it out there as Omar. Um, so I think that, so I got to give Omar some credit for helping me to to really break in a little bit even better. Because maybe if she thought it was me, uh, it might not have got that run, right? <laughs> but, but no, man, but that, that push on Sirius XM, and it's still in rotation, it's still in regular rotation at Sirius XM right now. And so that has really opened so many doors uh for me um to pursue the artistry on a serious level, you know, and then it just continues to grow.
0: So even Pat McKay didn't recognize uh that it was you. And a lot of people are are I, I still see people sort of shocked in the comments, like, whoa. Well is that you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But but it's 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 gospel with a with more of a contemporary feeling. Um yeah. do you think that or are you setting out to change the sound of Christian music, you think?
1: Um, I don't know if I'm setting out to change it, but I'm definitely setting out on my path to do something that's more authentic to me, right? Mm. Because um, you know, I would say here in the in the Caribbean and in the in in the states people have a different conception of what um gospel music or christian music might sound like right because um a lot of people back home don't know like like when you go with the churches that go to play and everything it's like a big production right i mean it's and i i don't say that as a good thing or a bad thing but i'm just saying that as a fact that it's the the, the worship component of it and i, I don't want to um trivialize it it's like a a concert before the sermon right and so i mean there's a light show there's a this there's a band there's there's all of that and so there's a lot of artistry that that goes into it and that's how i was able to develop my artistry because there's a there's a sense of of what this thing is but yes i am interested in in creating a sound and, and opening Potential potential doers because that's the you know one of the, one of the things that I face is you know for some of the places that I that I would play here I am um, I'm not quote unquote gospel enough because when people think about gospel in the U S they think about black gospel southern kind of gospel Fred is, Hammond <laughs> if, yeah exactly and that and that sort of stuff and so that's not really me right that's not authentic to me and I can't do that like they could do that, right? And if I and in and, Anguilla and some places like that, what I'm doing, that sound like too secular, right? I mean like, dude, you it sound like you got all these rock guitars and all this. What what's going on here, right? And so sometimes I don't I wouldn't say that I'm a man without a home, but I'm kinda of like a man without a home in these different places. But but what I've been able to do is because
0: you're you're I not am. you're not Fred Hammond enough for the Americans, exactly. and you're not Jacob Miller enough for the Caribbean people.
1: Exactly, <laughs> but but what ex, that's exactly how it is. But what I'm able to do now is, you know what? In the I figured out that in the, in the churches here in the states, I'm just going to do my thing because now I'm not really I'm not really competing, so to speak, with anybody else because my sound is different, and so there's always a spot that they could put me okay this is a this is the Caribbean guy that sound a little bit different so it's not like oh yeah he sound exactly like that guy and then I get those comparisons no so once once and that's something that a guy that I work with here really like my manager mentor here a guy by the name of Andres Adams shout out Andres Adams um, he was able to help me with and he was like look man just be your authentic self don't try to be American and we know that you're not a Jamaican, so you don't have to be a Jamaican. Just do what comes authentic to you, and present that. And whatever it comes out as, that's what we're gonna work with. And so, and so that's that's what I do now.
0: In one of your bios, it says that you establish your roots in the Houston community while maintaining a while maintaining a strong or firm connection uh, to your Caribbean culture. How important is it for you? to maintain that link to home because, you know, some people move to the States or move to Europe and they forget about the Caribbean, but you, you, you have one foot in. And yeah. <laughs> I remember one, once you told me you'd been back to Anguilla six or seven times in in the same year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was some, yeah, I don't do that as much now, but yeah, but there were times when I did that because again, I'm working with, um, if I'm working with Banky. I mean, my mom is there. You got all that stuff going on. I mean, all my—I'm the only one of my siblings here. My mother and my father lived here. My brother, and my sister, everybody lived here. My grandparents are here. and so I have no interest in relinquishing that aspect of myself. It's very important to who I am. It's important to how I identify my family. Um, my wife, even though she's American, um, my son. Is an Anguillan. He wasn't born there, and so it's very important for me to. That's that's a critical part of my personal identity, and so I just, I just can't see it any other way as me being Anguillan. So I'm an Anglian, um and I have an American experience. I, I, I live in America a lot of the time, but I have. I have business and I have my relationships in Anguilla.
0: So, Olamide, what happens now when one of your gospel songs takes off? Where does that leave law? <laughs> so, uh, that I, I think that would uh, definitely test your your passions. Would it be law or would it be music? Well, I don't really think that I'm. After, I don't think
1: I have to worry with that. But if um, I really see myself holy, and I don't see there was a point up until maybe about a year and a half ago where I really wasn't comfortable with these different parts of myself. The parts never mixed, right? I mean, part, part of part of the reason why a lot of people didn't know that I did music and I was doing music professionally is because I really wouldn't talk about it on certain aspects of my social media. So, you know, if, if, part of my social media was, was music and part of my social music, my social media was just... Regular life and and other things like that, and people really didn't know about it, right? Because I, I really I felt uncomfortable mixing them. I I felt a bit uncomfortable with the people that I worked with, um, in a professional legal setting, knowing that I did this music, and I, I didn't know how people would respond to that.
0: Fear and, of fear of being judged. Yeah, that
1: that was that, that that is true, you know, and that was a that was a fear that was you know that was me giving other people power over how I felt about myself and I had to make a conscious decision and I think I only really came to terms with it during the pandemic during um during a certain point in my life so I had a I had a life-changing event in um in at the end of 2019 I ended up in the in the ICU right um and so when that happens, you you start to reevaluate, you know, where you stand in life, what's important to you. And coming out of that, I, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to pursue the things that are important to me. I'm going to put my family um, as a priority in my life. And it really doesn't. I care about people, but I really don't care that much how people perceive me if I'm treating people in a respectful and an honorable way, right? So if I'm mistreating people, I care about how people feel about that. But if I'm treating people in a respectful and honorable way, I really don't care how people perceive me now about what they think is good, bad, or indifferent. And that was something that it took me into my 40s to be able to get to, and it took a life, life-altering life event for me to be able to do that. And so now I'm just comfortable with that, you know. If somebody, and and really it was something that I put on myself because nobody has either said anything negative about it or really it hasn't really impacted one way or the other. And so now that was one of the things that kind of put a ceiling in terms of what I could do musically. Cause if you don't, if you don't tell anybody that you're doing something, then they can't really know what you're doing. Right. Right. And so now, so now the, the, the doors are busting open. And I don't think that I'll have to, I'll have to deal with that, that question. I am a, I'm a lawyer. I'm a father. Uh, I'm a husband and I'm an artist. And so, all of these things you get wrapped into one they're, they're, they're inextricable. you know my my professional outlook, my critical thinking, it comes through in my music, my professional approach to the product that I that I put out. it comes through my music. the diligence it, it comes through in a way that I that I interact with my family. so uh, I'm not gonna have to choose.
0: Now, having said all that, yeah. what does success look like? Tall Lady Banks. Yeah.
1: So success, honestly, success looks to me like having an impact on people, having an impact on people. Um, being able to teach good lessons to my son, being able um, to help my family um, build on the legacy that my ancestors. Did. When i talk about my grandparents that legacy of giving that's that's success to me you know being able um to to support my wife and the things that she wants to do that's that's what success looks like to me in in terms of my music when people um, message me and say man i was listening to your music and it, it really helped me through a tough time that's what success looks like to me you know and that and so I'm I'm living success right now and I'm I'm I'm
0: hoping to to even ex- experience it on a higher level indeed a cu- a couple of uh quick fire questions mm. what is the best advice that you've received about your music career
1: uh the best advice i would say is be authentic to myself, you know, early on that was, that was one of the things I was doing I was trying to figure out what my sound would be well how could I, because I play the guitar um, I'm not a virtuoso guitar player like Omari, Omari is an amazing virtuoso but I, I play well enough on the acoustic guitar to compose my songs and to um, have a presence with it when I present it um, in, a, in a live format Right. Um, but, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what, you know, am I going to be this guy dancing around the place? Am I going to do what is it that I'm going to do? Right. Gonna take
0: my shirt off? No. But figuring out that I could just be me. The, just... gospel, the gospel artist with the six packs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So, so figuring out that. Just be authentically myself. Kind of boring. When I say boring, in terms of my live presentation, is not boring. So this one of the things is um, I had a chance to do a live, a live um, Facebook live thing in February, and one I knew I could I could present um, a live show in front of an audience, but that was a challenge to me without without an audience, right? Like singing into a camera. And trying to figure out what people are gonna be experiencing. But um because I knew who I was, and because I knew I didn't have to cut any flips or try to do anything extra and just be authentic, it came out in a way that it kind of resonated with people. And so the best advice that I receive is be yourself, be authentic. Don't try to be anybody else.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Words, words of wisdom. Now, tell us the best advice you can give to younger artists. There are tons of artists in the Caribbean especially, very talented people, Um, but they always, well, many of them don't seem to get it quite right. What are some nuggets that you can give to especially younger artists? About the music yeah. industry.
1: Yeah, so the the best advice, and this is um, stuff that I've kind of learned along the way, work with Omar, with Banky and all that, right, and, and for myself. Um, number one, work on your craft, right? Become good at what you do. Put the time in, right? So number one, work at your craft. Number two, don't worry about fame and financial success just yet there's going to be a time to think about about how you manage your money and do all these types of things like that but the the first thing is work on your craft build a build a tribe right have a have a a system uh, a group of people that you could connect with rely on it's going to be so important for you to have maybe other artists, or maybe they're not other artists, but people who are not along for the ride, are not along for the fame or whatever, and who could give you frank advice, and who could tell you what you need to hear when you need to hear it, right? And then when you when you start to when you start to get opportunities, treat people well, right? Treat everybody will I'm saying when if somebody book you to do something whether or not you're getting paid or whether or not you're not getting paid give your best performance um, the people who setting up the stage the people who break down the stage treat them with respect people who tr- changing the, um, the, the the liner bags and the, and the trash cans treat them with respect treat everybody professionally because the thing about it is, the business is so small, and
0: everybody knows everybody.
1: Everybody knows everybody, and what you do one time, okay, so getting a big show one time is not really going to do anything for you long term. You need those kind of repeat connections, and if you're if the experience that these people had with you the first time was that you came and trashed the place, or you showed up late, or you know you were rude to this person or that person you know it's not going to not going to work out well for you i mean i would give you an example of you know when i was working with um with moon splash and i still work with moon splash and so um you know sometimes working with some of the artists um you know i'm dealing with them online or i'm dealing with them in person paying them or driving them from place to place gotta do all these different types of things and you know, they didn't. They didn't know that I'm the one who's gonna be giving them the money later in the night, and so they might treat me rudely, or they might do something like that, and so it will impact whether or not we'll have any dealing with them in the future, right? right. And so you you don't you want to treat people properly anyway, but especially the people that you're interacting with. Treat everybody. In a, in, a, in a respectful way Those are the, those are the main pieces of advice That I would give initially to young artists coming up
0: You never know if the driver is also the CFO Exactly, <laughs> exactly Now, uh, conversely, in, in terms of Well, music is business as well But in terms of <clears throat> traditional business What are some of the best advices you've received In, in traditional business? <sighs>
1: Best advice that I received, and I don't know who I received this from, but always give more than you get paid for. Right? So do the work for the for the job that you that you want to have. Right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people feel like, man, they're not paying me what I'm worth, and they have a bad attitude, and they slough off on the job. No, you don't. Again, the same thing. You don't know who's looking. You don't know what opportunity is going to happen. And when you don't give your best, yeah, it impacts the other person, but it impacts you and it impacts the way that you perceive yourself and the way that you're going to end up being um, your confidence in doing the next thing. So always work above what it is that you're getting paid for. You know, let let people let let people have that impression of you. Don't don't work down to the job that you got, and God forbid, don't work less than the job that you got.
0: Wow, 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 wow! Now, specifically for entrepreneurs, give me your top three nuggets that you can drop to anybody thinking about starting their own business.
1: Mm, yeah. So, thinking of starting your business, the first thing I would say is. You know, really, really think it through, right? Think it through, what it is that you're gonna do, and and, and figure out why it is that you're doing it. Number one, uh, I, I use this here, and I think I've been on a, a big kick with who, what, why, where, when, and how, right? But your why is so important, right? Understand why you're getting into this, right? Is it because you're looking for prestige? Is it because you want to change the world? Understand why, and I'm not going to make your your why good, bad, or other, but don't lie to yourself about why you're doing it. Don't say you're going in to change your community if what you're trying to do is make a lot of money, right? Right? Because that's going to impact what you need to do. So understand your why, right? That's one thing. The other thing, and it relates to an entrepreneurs, it relates to music, it relates to me starting my own thing, Make it a personal ethic to treat people fairly, right to you know pay for what you get, right and give people a, a good day's work for what it is that you're doing that that's again, I don't know if that that may not seem like like oh big advice for entrepreneur, but having a mindset where you where you're gonna treat people fairly and with respect. Okay. And then mm-hmm. the, a, a, a third piece of advice, would be to get some advisors, Ooh. right? Get 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 some advisors. Get some people around you. And and the thing about it is, um, there are a lot of of cause people. People don't know. People,
0: How do you <laughs> pick I, those I
1: people in though? Cities. Well, you you interview people. You ask different people. So like I was about to say, like people don't know. People just call me all the time, and I talk to them. Right. Yeah. So you, you, like they say, a closed mouth, don't get fed, but sometimes you just got to ask questions. So, um, whether it's me, whether it's not another, uh, another attorney or somebody like that, I'm just saying, I'm not even talking about hiring somebody to do work. I'm talking about start interviewing people and start seeing whether or not these people might be part of the tribe that you will, that you will put together right? But you want to get good advice. And the only way that you're going to find these people is by building relationships, starting by building relationships, getting around people who are doing it. Sometimes what you need to do is get around other, like the professionals. You might want a CPA, um, somebody who really understands the numbers. Well, if you're young and you starting out. It may be wise for you to find somebody who's young and starting out as well, because you not only can you guys grow together, but you know you could the 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 relationship that you have with them could also benefit them. If you just want to go and get somebody who's got twenty years experience and just mooch everything off of them, you're not really bringing anything to that relationship, right? So find people who you could also help as they help you right because you may be able to give them advice and something because again people who may be young CPAs and young lawyers nobody taught me how to sell when I was in um, when I was in undergrad or in law school right nobody taught me how to sell and bring in a client I had to learn I had to read a lot of books and do all that sort of stuff after school to learn how to sell and so you know those those younger professionals they don't know how to sell, and so they don't know how to find clients. And so by you reaching out to them, you may help them to find a client, and you may help them to learn how to how to sell, and they, they become part of your trusted network, right? So th- that would be some of the advice I would give to young entrepreneurs. I mean, the other stuff, the other things that people may think about, like protect yourself from business, read your contracts, that goes without saying, right? That That's just – I probably shouldn't go without saying, but – uh, it goes without saying that you got to protect yourself, you got to read your contracts, you got to have somebody to do that. But I think a big part of success is the relationships, building the relationships, treating people right, bringing value in these things and really thinking through what it is that you want to do and knowing your why.
0: Mm. Knowing uh, your why. Yeah would you and, and I know that you've you've uh, been a guest lecturer at universities. Mm-hmm. Would you consider teaching at all?
1: Yeah, so right now, that's what I'm doing this summer. Um, There's a school called University of Houston downtown. It's separate from the University of Houston campus that I went to, but it's a part of the same system. And so for the past six years in the summer, I um, I co-teach a class called Professionalism for Accountants in the MBA program. So on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, we get together for four hours each night. And I'm dealing with... Yeah, exactly. I'm dealing with MBA students and preparing them for life as professionals. And a big part of what what I'm bringing to the table in that class is the practical aspect that we're talking about, which is um, how do you get past the theory that you have? Because a lot of people, I mean, anybody who's had to hire people coming out of college, the biggest complaint that people have is, look, man, this person got a degree and they don't have a clue about what to do and they don't know how business works. And so this school, um, University of Houston downtown, they 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 created this class specifically for that purpose, is to help the next generation of leaders to be prepared to hit the ground running when they get in there. So I get to be a part of that class. And uh, that's a curriculum that's developed by a um, lady uh, named Dr. Lloyd and myself, so...
0: Nice, nice, nice. And yeah. one of my favorite questions here on Planet 30, uh, you right. mentioned it uh, before, but books. What are some of Olaidi Banks' favorite <laughs> books or oh, man. those that you'd oh, like man. to recommend to the audience?
1: Yeah, so I would say one of the one of the most important books that I've read um, is a book called Think and Grow Rich. I think somebody else mentioned it on your podcast it's, before. It, it, I- it's
0: a popular one. I think... Um, I did an interview that has not aired as yet, uh, that has not been published, and uh, the young lady mentioned that as well. But go ahead, Think and Grow Rich. Yeah,
1: but yeah, definitely. I think at least a couple of people in season one mentioned it, right? Um, but yeah, and that's a book, Literal, I bought at least 20 copies of that book and given out, and I've got seven more copies in here um, that to, to give out. But anytime I, I see somebody um, who seem like it might be serious. I give him a copy of that book because it's a, it's not a book about getting rich. It's a book about, um, you know, understanding how to treat people with respect and dignity, um, and understanding the power that lies within you to be able to accomplish the things that you do. So that, that's a big book. Um, anything by, and so the author of that book is Napoleon Hill, anything by, um, by Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins is a motivational speaker, um, he has books called Giant Steps um, and Unleashing the Giant Within. And then, yeah. You know, yeah, those are those are great books I'd recommend. In terms of business books, I'm reading a couple of books right now. There's a book uh, by a brother by the name of Charles Blow. It's called um, Let me tell you, it's right on my desk here. It's called The Devil You Know, right? Mm. And it's it, It's called The Devil You Know, and it's about um african-americans how is how uh it's a it's a strategy or it's a ethereal theory or a hypothesis in terms of building wealth and power here in the u.s uh, i'm reading a lot of books like that right now i'm reading i'm reading um marcus gavry's collected um speeches um, speeches right now uh i got also right here i'm just looking at my bookshelf while we, while we do it um there's a a book um called Four Hundred Souls. I'm reading cats. So a lot I'm in this mode right now where I'm reading a lot of books on the black and the African American experience. And and just really to try to to understand that a little bit better and help people help people with that. I read the Bible a lot, man. There's a lot of powerful wisdom and knowledge in the Bible and I'm I've been reading the Bible for more than thirty years and it's it's one of the more um, impactful books in my life. Um, a lot of other books, business books. There's a there's a a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. So I I just recommend people to read. Man, I read. I try to read a book a month. Right. Um, sometimes I do better. Sometimes I don't do as well. But just read, read, read. The more you read, the more um, knowledge you could unleash.
0: Indeed, indeed. So tell us, what's the next big thing for Lady Banks?
1: Well, the next big thing, man. I got. Um, I am. I think that my first album will probably be released um, in the fall of this year. Um, I, I, I have some music that's already finished but not released yet. Um, I just got one of my songs to listen to yesterday. Just got finished mixing, and so I'm feeling really good about that. Um, so that's that's a big thing, and I'm I'm also you know really excited about what it is that I'm going to be doing professionally, legally, man. I'm I'm, I'm really been inspired over the past months, um, like I was mentioning a little bit earlier, to help a few more people achieve some real success. So that's something that I'm just going to be you know keeping my mind and my spirit open, um, you know, to really help some people grow. I, I really enjoy the process of working with an entrepreneur or a business owner who's at a certain place mentally um and who's willing to kind of make the sacrifices and really work with them on that journey. So that's something that I'm I'm really excited about over the next few years is really helping some people get to that point. And then um also from um I really I'm looking to, on the entertainment side, I don't know exactly what form it will take, but create a, a platform or avenue for artists um, that I'm affiliated with, artists on the island, uh, a platform for them to to present themselves more broadly. So I don't know exactly what... Um, what what track that will take, but that's something that's kind of stirring inside of me right now.
0: Got it, got it. Mm. Now, Olaity, when you are 105 years old and you are sitting on your porch overlooking Rendezvous Bay in St. Martin in Anguilla. got it, man. (laughs) On your rocking chair, sipping your cup of tea with your lovely wife. uh, What is that thing that you... Would say, you know, I wanted to do that, and I did that. What is your ultimate goal at the end of it all?
1: You know, the ultimate goal is always to impact people and to change lives. So, if I if I could look back at that point, and and if I got my memory at that point, remember um, some of the people that I've been able to help achieve some measure measure of success and I could see them succeeding and accomplishing the dreams that they set out for themselves, then I would be, I would feel like I've had a very productive and fruitful life. If I could see some tangible su- success from some of the people that I've worked with to help.
0: Always in service.
1: Yeah, that's the plan, man. That's the plan.
0: Now, as per usual, you're very familiar with this. I strap on my spacesuit and I jump off the planet and I let you have the rain. Uh, the planet is yours. Say what you want to the audience.
1: Yeah, I would like to say to people, man, um, pursue the dreams that you got, man. Everybody, you've got you got some dreams, you got some passions inside of you. Um, pursue them. Take some time to get quiet and think about what it is. Uh, that the god within you is speaking to you and then pursue those things relentlessly right that that's that's all i got to say to people get some time be quiet hear what god is saying to you and then when god is giving you some clarity pursue those dreams and passions relentlessly
0: love it love it love it Olighty Banks, how do we contact you? How do we get your music? Uh, any 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 other information that you'd like to give out to the audience? Lay it on us.
1: Definitely. So my website is olightybanks.com. That's O-L-A-I-D-E-B-A-N-K-S B-A-N-K-S.com. And why you want to go to my website is, yeah, you got links to my music and all that, but there's deeper stuff. There's conversations that I have with friends of mine. There's information if you want to get into social activism or if you want to get into supporting organizations that serve the community. The links on my website for you to learn more about how to do that, to to inform yourself on that. If you want to connect with me on social media, I'm on Facebook Instagram quite regularly. It's it's Oladi Banks. Just whatever, just type in Oladi Banks and I'm the one, right? the only lady Banks there, uh, join my my YouTube, just lady Banks Music on YouTube. And f- I'm releasing new music there all the time. My videos are there. And so I would encourage people to do that. And the other thing that I would encourage people to do Crispin is if you enjoy my music, and I know a lot of people enjoy my music, share it with your friends, right? Because... A lot of people they come to be in private, and I think it's kind. Of sometimes people feel embarrassed by it, and they're like, "Man, you know that music really um, motivates me, man. It really inspires me." But I would say, um, if it inspires you, share it with a friend because you don't know what it is that somebody else is going through and how the music um, could benefit them. So if it if you like it, somebody else would like it too. And you don't have to share it on your on your Facebook page, but share it with somebody um, in a message or something like that. And and that's what it is. So it's oliday Banks on social media and on YouTube, it's oliday Banks Music.
0: Wonderful, wonderful, and wonderful. oliday Banks, the attorney, the musician, the husband, the activist, the father. Thank you so much for being on Planet 30.
1: And look, Crispin, I am I am honored to be on Planet Thirty. I have listened to every episode at least twice, I think. And um, wow, it's really? An honor for, yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> so if you if you see your numbers going up, it's probably me. No. But I would um I would say, man, definitely. I I respect what it is that you're doing, man. Uh, I want to encourage you to continue doing it because it's it's blessing people. Is showing people the professionalism um, that we as Anguillians and Caribbean people can bring to the plate. As so I want to tell you that the work that you're doing is valuable. The work that you are doing is appreciated, man. And continue to do great work on Planet 30.
0: Thank you so much. That means the world to me. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Olaidi Banks, Planet 30. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, Planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.